Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the podcast. We're going to be doing a special podcast this week as we're going to be kind of deviating from our year through the New Testament, and we're going to specifically be focusing on Passion Week because uh, that's topical and thematical and yeah, what's your just idea and your own background for wanting to do this, Rob? We're going to put a lot of notes in the show notes. So if you're listening uh, right now and you haven't looked at the show notes, go ahead and go back and stop and go look at the show notes because I'm going to give an outline of all the verses that we're doing. And what basically we've done is compiled Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and try to put them together as much as possible to kind of give us an outline of at least the Thursday night and the Last Supper and the events in the garden, his arrest, his trials and through the crucifixion on Friday. So we kind of went Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, through that. And so we're just going to be reading that and talking about that and kind of putting the order of these things the, be- the best we can. Great. So this is going to be a fun episode. Before we launch into this, we do want to kind of quick do an impromptu commercial. We def- definitely want to get our podcast out there. We, you know, we're not doing it <laughs> uh, to build college money for the kids. It's, it's something that we want to bless people with. And it's been your heart for years on this. But we're also learning that the more you guys as listeners are involved, the more you can help us. And so one of the things that you can do even right now, pause this episode or after you're done with this one, whatever app you're listening, whether it's Podbean or Apple or Spotify or whatever, go into the show and like it, you know, give it five star review and even add a review in there. Like say, Hey, you know, we just, we love the podcast. It's a, it's a blessing, whatever. These sorts of things actually helps it get in the algorithm and into the loop better. And more people have an opportunity to see this. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the notes, especially the comments. So if you'll mm-hmm. just give some comments, they have to be good ones. If they're not good ones, we're going to hunt you down. Yes, we will. Yeah, we, absolutely. Yeah. We, we, we have people because Vinny, Vinny knows people. Hey, right? My name is Vinny Angelo. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we're not messing with Vinny Angelo. But uh, yeah, especially leave comments and what have you. That really helps us get found on the search engines. Yeah. So the more you can do that, the better. And, and we're not doing that. Honestly, it's not because of, we don't need the affirmation. Right. It's truly just a way to get it kicked out there more so more people could have access to it. So if, if this is blessing you, especially on a regular basis, and we know it is because we know that there's regular listeners, please do this to help us out. And uh, I think they'll, they'll just, you know, this gonna help. It's, 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 this is what we do. When we're excited about something, we tell everyone about it. Yeah. Case in point. If you have any friend who's involved in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, you know it because you've heard about it because that's all they talk about, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So cool. Hey, let's jump into what we're going to start talking about. So let's start with, it's funny, it, in the Protestant tradition, especially the non-mainline Protestant tradition, Holy Week for us is there's some, like, there's a good Friday. Maybe. Maybe. It, like, it, it's there. Like yep. it's a thing that exists. And then it's clean up the yard on Saturday because Sunday is Easter, which right. means Easter baskets or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it, you know, it, I, I've even thought about this, how Easter really is not in the American Protestant tradition. Easter is not the central Christian holiday. It's Christmas. And we, we have these culture war over Christmas. Keep Christ in Christmas, which really just means keep Christ in consumerism. Yeah. Right. Because that's that's what we really want to mean on that. But Easter is the, this is the holiday of the, of the Christian church. Yes. When I was preaching, I used to say every Sunday is Easter. Mm. The reason why we meet on Sunday is to honor the resurrection of Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. The Sabbath day is Saturday. That's the created order. That's the way it's always been. The Sabbath day is Saturday. The only way you can justify changing the Sabbath day is to honor the resurrection of Jesus, which mm-hmm. we do by taking communion. Yep. And I do believe that we should take communion every week, mm-hmm. even though I pastored a church for seven years and we didn't do it every week because I didn't try to, to fight that battle. But uh, I, I believe that the reason why we take communion on Sunday, or the reason why we gather on Sunday is to honor the resurrection of Jesus, which we do by taking communion. Yeah. Absolutely. Otherwise, we just go back to Saturday worship. Yeah, yeah. Which is Saturday is the Sabbath. That's literally that's what it means. Right. Yeah. It's the Sunday is the first day of the new week, and we'll discuss mm-hmm. that in our John podcast. So stay tuned for that. But the other thing about what you're talking about is liturgical churches. You spend four weeks in Advent, mm-hmm. so there's every year you and there's only like three chapters in the entire Bible discussing Advent stuff. Matthew one, maybe a little bit of Matthew two, and you know Luke one, maybe Luke two, maybe four chapters. Mm-hmm. And every year you got to preach out of those same chapters. Yeah. But Easter gets one week. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? What are we doing? And obviously, you know, a good liturgical church says, no, you got 50 days after Easter to continue to celebrate it. Mm-hmm. You know, before Pentecost. It's like, yeah, but I think a lot of churches forget about that. And Easter is the the essence of Christianity is Easter. Without Easter, there is no Christianity. Yeah. So if, if you're growing up in, or if you've been involved in maybe a non-denominational, maybe certain Baptist traditions, uh, traditions like that, oftentimes, you know, we wait for Easter and that's the thing. And I'm, I'm excited because I'm, I'm part of a church now that's kind of changing that. So we actually have a Monday, Thursday service. We have a good Friday service, and then you have Easter and it, it's purposeful why we do each one. But it's interesting because I, I grew up a Lutheran yeah. and this was part of the normal thing. So Monday, Thursday was a thing you did every year. Good Friday was a thing you did every year. Uh, and then it led up to Easter. And, and you and then you would even see after that, like you talk about the liturgical calendar, how the colors in the church change after yeah, this, right. uh, you know, whether it's the banners or whatever you have in there, uh, you know, post Easter as you're in Epiphany and, and you're moving towards uh, Pentecost and that sort of thing. So yep. we're, we're going to talk about passion week and what that looks like. So let's talk about, uh, do you want to start with Monday, Thursday? Uh, sure. Um, and so right off the bat, that's a weird word. Monday, I, as a little kid growing up Lutheran, I'm like Monday, Thursday, what does that mean? <laughs> like, I was just confused on that. So what does that word even mean? Yeah, it's Monday, Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always put an A and Monday, Thursday. Yeah. It's, it's Monday, Thursday. Uh, and it comes from the Latin mandatum, which means a new commandment or uh, uh, novum mandatum, a new commandment I give to you. On Thursday night at the Last Supper, Jesus tells the disciples, I give you a new commandment that you shall love one another. And so that's the name for the Last Supper and the events on Thursday night. We call it Monday, Thursday. You know, how is this going to be different than from Passover itself? And especially I know there are churches that, you know, during this time, they actually might host a, a, a Passover cedar dinner uh, for people to say, hey, let's let's practice a, a Passover dinner. Are these the same things? Monday, Thursday, Passover? They're two different things. And I think that's important. So I don't have a problem with people doing Seder dinners mm-hmm. where you basically go into a Jewish home and, or find out the way that Jewish people did it. But I would note a couple things. Number one, it's a Jewish holiday and a Jewish practice, not Christian. Mm-hmm. The idea people have is, well, if you go to a Seder, a Seder Passover, you're learning what the disciples did on the Last Supper. And that's just, no, you're actually not for two reasons. One is the Passover Seder is a Jewish practice and the disciples and Jesus transformed that. Mm-hmm. So what we talk about with Monday Thursday, and what we're going to discuss in this particular podcast is Jesus is, if they're having, they're having a Passover meal, that's true, but he's changing, he's Christianizing the whole thing. So it's a big difference there. The second thing is this, and I was talking to a, rab- a local rabbi one time about this and, rab- and rabbi said, Rob, 
the Seder dinner was actually invented in the, in the 1800s. Mm. So this is not what Jesus and his disciples were eating or doing. This is, has nothing to do with it. That's not the way they practiced the Passover in the first century. So the other reason then is a modern Seder dinner is a modern Seder dinner, and it's not reflective of what the disciples were actually doing at the Last Supper. How could we be certain then that the event of that last week of Jesus's life actually happened in the last week of his life? Yeah. So sometimes people will talk about the last week of Jesus's life or passion week or Holy week. And they'll have a whole list of, he did this on Monday. He did this on Tuesday. He did this on Wednesday. And then Thursday, of course, Thursday night, the last supper and study Bibles do that. They have a mm -hmm. timeline of Jesus's life. And the reality is you actually can't do that. We only know from the gospel of John that the triumphal entry happened on the Sunday before the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. So we can date the, the, the triumphal entry, what we call the triumphal entry. We can date that to Sunday before the crucifixion because John's gospel tells us that. Mark's gospel, which is the template as we discussed Matthew, mm -hmm. Mark, and Luke so far, Mark's that first gospel that's used there does not, does not tell us when the, the triumphal entry happened at all. We just know it happened before. We just know, mm -hmm. well, we well know he comes to Jerusalem, he does yeah. this, and then shortly thereafter he's crucified. But yeah. Mark doesn't give us any chronology at all. It could have been months before. It could have been six months before. It could have been three weeks before. Only John's gospel clues us in. The other thing to remember about that is that Mark's gospel only has Jesus in Jerusalem one time. And that is in chapter 11. His first appearance in Jerusalem is Mark 11. And then he stays in Jerusalem and dies there. We know mm -hmm. from John, he kind of came back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So there's no way to note what happens in the gospel of Mark, does all that happen during Holy Week or not? Because Mark tells us everything that happened in Jerusalem from chapter 11 on, because that's the only time he was ever in Jerusalem, if that makes sense there. Mm -hmm. The point then is the gospels aren't giving us chronological order of events. We discussed this a little bit. Matthew 13 has seven parables. And like you said, it's, it's parable day. No, it's just Matthew's compiling seven parables because obviously seven is an important number. Mark is sandwiching stories and he's telling us this story and then something in the middle and then he sandwiches another story. The Gospels are writing this story with this creative artistry going on. So in Luke 6, he tells us what love looks like. And then Luke 7, he, he demonstrates what love looks like by the miracles as we, as we discussed on a previous podcast. So we can't go to the Gospels and kind of say, okay, this happened and, and then this happened. There's no way to really to do that. Best we can do is say, well, we know Sunday, the triumphal entry happened according to the Gospel of John. And then we know Thursday night, it's the last supper and those, and those events there. And I think the rest of it, we have to just say, well, maybe, I mean, we don't know that it didn't happen in that mm -hmm. order. We just can't be certain that, certain that it did. Yeah. And part of this is just not imposing our own modern standards of how right. we do history and read things uh, where it's like, no, what's the chronology? He said this, 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 that must be the way it is just in an ancient world. That's just not how they told stories. They're not as concerned with, with pinpointing the exact GPS and location services of something. That's just not how they told it. Yeah. In fact, if you go to first uh, Samuel sometime and read the story of David and Goliath mm -hmm. and David slays Goliath. And then in the next chapter, David's introduced as though he's a new character. Mm -hmm. He's not telling you the story in chronological order. And that's a history book yeah. and that's first Samuel. So yeah, we just gotta be careful about presuming some of those things. You read different scholars and uh, even what we might call like a, a, a critical scholar someone maybe outside of the evangelical tradition or something, but a really good scholar. And they might suggest that Jesus, you know, his plan wasn't to go to the cross, but then later acquiesced or later said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and do this. Do you think that's what's happening? No, not at all. The cross was central to Jesus's life from the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
the gospel writers portray all along, this is the plan. I'm going to the cross. This is the way I'm going to do things. And I think the way to do it would be that there's a contrast between the, the way the, the kingdoms of the world do power mm-hmm. and the way the kingdom of God does power. And the way the kingdom of God does power is through love. And I think we'd all agree that love is the essence of Christ's message. And then he defines love as laying down your life for the sake of the other. And that's the essence of the gospel. And for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, then the cross was always all along from the beginning intentional. It's not only that Jesus and, you know, has this idea that this is part of his plan. When you read the new Testament writers after Jesus, this is what the way they preach, you know, you read uh, in Acts chapter two and Peter's giving his, you know, his, his sermon to the religious leaders. And he says, you know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him and killed him. And so even there, there's this idea that this is, this was God's plan all along in terms of how he was going to act in redemptive history. Yeah. And you go even further. And the answer is, and you're supposed to take up your cross and follow him as well. Yes. And the argument I'm making in my commentary in the book of revelation is that this is the way that God redeems his creation is by the people of God laying down their lives also for the sake of the nations. The nations are redeemed by the kindness and love of God because he loved us by laying down his life and also by the kindness and love of God as the people of God also lay down their lives for the nations. So it's a dominant theme. So yeah, to pick this up, when you go through the gospels and what you notice, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have this, hey, Jesus is going to Jerusalem intentionally. And he's going there to die. And, you know, Luke actually uses the word his exodus. He's going, this is his exodus. He's going there to suffer. And the way to look at this then would be this. The gospels are really clear that Jesus was crucified for the charge of being the king of the Jews. The dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, for example, in the gospel of John, where Pilate says, are you a king? And John says, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. Mm -hmm. So you are a king then. And Jesus never denies that. He acknowledges that he's a king. Now, again, not of this world doesn't mean like heavenly and spiritual. It just means it's a different kind of kingdom than the way the world works. Before he's on the cross, they dress him in a purple garment. They intend to mock him, of course, claiming that he's to be or mocking his claim that he's actually the king. They place a crown of thorns on his head in Matthew, Mark and John's gospel. So there's no question that the gospel writers are telling you, guys, they think they're mocking him as his claim to be the king of the, the king of the world. But he really actually is the king of the world. And so there's no question, I think, that the gospel all along has Jesus going to the cross. All right. So let's get into the text. Let's, let's follow along with some things then. So we're in Thursday night, Monday, Thursday, you have these events that happen in the upper room. It's nighttime, maybe six o'clock. How can we be certain regarding the time that these things are happening? Well, we can't be completely certain at all, especially again, the uncertainty as to what actually transpired that particular night. But we know that they're having a Passover meal, and that's going to begin at sundown, which would be about 6 o'clock p.m. or so. So sometime around 6 o'clock, the disciples get together uh, to get into the upper room, and they do the preparations, and they, they sit down. And according to John's gospel, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Now, we're not going to go through all what happens in John 13 through 17, because we'll do that uh, on our podcast in the Gospel of John. But the significance of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is that in John's gospel, it's extremely significant to to recall that he's writing the gospel with this theology of the temple. Jesus himself is the temple of God. He's the dwelling place of God. Mm -hmm. It says in the beginning, John 1, 14, we beheld his glory. In John chapter two, Jesus says, I am the temple of God. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. 
And then what he does then is actually he's now transferring this responsibility, this mission of being the temple, because that's the presence of God, to his disciples. And he washes the disciples' feet. Now, John 13 says, the feast of the Passover was near, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. This is John 13, verse 1. And then he would depart out of the world uh, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Now, during the supper, the devil have already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, had come forth from God, and he was going back to God. And he got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I do to you, you do not realize now, but you will understand thereafter. And Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus then says, now he who bathes needs only to wash his feet, but is, and is completely clean. And you are all clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Now, let me stop there for a second. Let's kind of give a couple comments on this. It's very often that people characterize Peter as the loud mouth, the, the one who's always speaking up and always saying the silly things, and I'm never going to betray you and all these things like this. You have to understand the fact, as we've discussed already, that there's, there's a hierarchy even within the 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. And Peter's clearly at the top of that hierarchy. Whether you like it or not, Protestants, Peter is clearly the leader <laughs> of the apostles. There's no question about it. We can just look at the order of the names in the list of the 12 apostles, and Peter's always first. And in that culture, for someone else to speak up would actually be preempting the responsibility of Peter. Mm -hmm. So we saw in the gospel of Mark that when Jesus says, hey, who do you think I am? Or, oh, you're the Christ. That Peter answers that because it's Peter's job to answer that. If someone else speaks up and says the correct answer, that they kind of showed up Peter. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus says, okay, great. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And then Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. It's Peter's job to save Jesus's honor. Jesus, you can't do that. You're dishonoring yourself. So also here at this last supper, Jesus has girded himself with a washcloth and he's taken the role of a servant. I mean, he's doing something that even Jewish people wouldn't do to other Jewish people. You just only a slave washes someone else's feet. And so Peter's the one who speaks up and says, uh, no, I don't think so, Jesus, because you're shaming yourself. Jesus says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but you will afterwards. And Peter says, no, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, and the Greek could be translated as, you have no share with me. Hmm. You have no part, no share in this ministry. Now, the significance of the feet washing, and of course, you ask this question, oh, what's the significance of the washing of the feet? And people say, well, Jesus is telling us what servant leadership looks like. We're supposed to wash one another's feet. Well, the reality is, is that you don't find anywhere else, I believe, in the, in the entirety of the New Testament where the disciples ever washed someone else's mm -hmm. feet. So clearly he wasn't giving us this model, hey, go and do thou likewise. And you think if that's the purpose of washing the feet was, hey, I'm submitting myself to you so that you learn to submit yourself to others, that they wouldn't have carried on this practice, mm -hmm. even if it was only symbolic, you still would have carried it on in some way, shape or form. The reality is, is that you have to read this gospel as Jesus preparing themselves to become the temple of God mm. and to enter the temple of God, you must be holy and holiness. One of the ways to get holiness is to be washed or purified. So we talk about John the Baptist baptizing people, but baptisms were practiced 
throughout the Jewish world at this time in different ways. And one of the ways that they practice baptism is called, it's called a mikvah. And the mikvah is basically a, a, a bath. And we find mikvahs all over uh, this, this land at this particular point in time, before the time of Jesus and thereafter. And what they were is they'd be found next to synagogues. So before you go into the synagogue, you might take this spiritual bath. And they're certainly found outside the, the temple in Jerusalem. You walk in and then you make a curve and you come up the other side so that anybody who's coming in, who's, who's defiled, mm -hmm. doesn't come into contact with someone else who's coming out. And so before you enter the temple in Jerusalem, you had a mikvah, this holy washing. And Jesus tells Peter, that's what I'm doing. And Peter's like, oh, if that's what I'm doing, then wash not only my hands and my feet, but my whole body, my whole being. So mm -hmm. Jesus begins the supper with this show of humility, but it has a very great significance because he's preparing the disciples for them becoming holy as the temple presence of God. Yeah. And speaking of this in connection to Maundy Thursday, where Jesus is giving this command, this has become... I don't need, I would have to study the denominations more, but there are denominations that almost treat this like a sacrament. And I don't know if they actually would consider yeah. it a sacrament. Yeah. And that's great. I would say- You're not say, saying there's anything wrong with doing the thing in itself. No, not at all. In mm -hmm. fact, I think doing the thing itself is great. And it's a reminder mm -hmm. of what we are supposed to do. I just think it's important that you remember what you just did. Mm-hmm. And that you just wash someone else's feet saying, I love you so much. I'm willing to serve you. Mm -hmm. Then don't backbite them on Sunday afternoon mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and don't speak negatively about them in the marketplace mm -hmm. and don't try, right? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is a reminder of the holiness that we all possess and how we love and serve one another. But that needs to be carried out now in our actions also. Yeah. yeah. I, I never understood the significance of Peter's, um, you know, we read Peter and we're like, Oh, Peter, shut up. <laughs> like yeah, Jesus right, is exactly, doing something. Yeah. It's obviously right. Don't question Jesus. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I think I've always read it that way until my first experience with this. Mm -hmm. And this was actually with you. Okay. Um, and, and so this is, it's oh. about, it's about 10 years ago. Cause you, when you lived in the barrier, you discipled a group of guys and oh, your thing. Right. Yeah. And, and your oh, thing yeah. was like, Hey, instead of meeting with all these guys individually, like let's all get together once a month. Yeah. And so right. we would do that like one, one Saturday night a month at my and, house. Yeah. Your house. And yeah. I remember we're all hanging out and it was cool. Cause we got to meet all these other guys that we might not know. Yeah. And, and you bust out like towels and water. And we're like, what the heck? Like Rob's not going to wash our feet. And you're not Jesus. Like you're not even close to that, man. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I asked my wife, you know, that confirm that I'm not, but it, it, like, I remember all of us kind of sitting in this room, like, I don't like this. This is awful. Stop yeah. doing this. Uh, I wish I would have known. I would have worn better socks. Like, yeah, like I would have washed my, my feet before yeah. I, <laughs> I would have showered. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like, like, yeah, when you have someone who's mentoring you or mm -hmm. discipling you doing that, like that is, a, you know, it's a typology in a sense of like, oh, yeah. this is what it would have been like at a much extreme level with Jesus. And if I'm feeling this this way towards you, like how much more would Peter have felt this towards Jesus, especially in that context where, heck, I, I drove to your house and I had clean clothes and shoes on. I didn't walk with sandals through the dusty streets. Yeah, that, that's right. And the idea of it is if I can wash your feet, then you can wash everyone else's feet. Exactly. It's an idea. But I think we have to think about this in one other way. And that is take this to the person that you don't really like at the church mm -hmm. and wash their feet. Mm-hmm. 
because it's one thing to wash someone else's feet as a yeah. token gesture or whatever, because we're all doing that. And you pass the thing down the aisle and we all wash one another's feet. Or, the, or the people in your small group who you love. It, yeah, right? right. Exactly. Yeah. But then take that person that you really get annoyed with mm-hmm. and wash their feet. Mm-hmm. And I think this is because remember, he's washing Judas's feet. He says, mm-hmm. not all of you are clean. Judas is yeah. still in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Great point. All right. So Jesus goes on and says, look, I've done this as an example for you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right for so I am. That's verse 13. Verse uh, 14, he says, if I then the Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. But again, he doesn't mean that literally because they never go do that. Mm-hmm. He means that this is the attitude of love and sacrifice for one another that you should have. He says, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Yeah, powerful. Mm-hmm. Now again, Judas is still there. So we have Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, all three of the four, all four of the gospels then have the, the disciples sitting down in a meal. Jesus is going to identify the betrayer. So John 13 continues and says, well, you want to read it, Vinny? Uh, John 13, 21 and 22. Sure. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another. And at a loss to know which one of them was speaking. I think that's really significant because we're all sitting there. If this is a movie, we're like, it's Judas. It's Judas. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we, we know he's been stealing from the money box. All the disciples had no idea. They did not know who it was. Now, Matthew 26 says, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they all began to inquire saying, surely not I, Lord. Matthew 26, 20, uh, verse 22. Jesus responds and says, it's one who's dipped his hand with me in, into the bowl. Now, I wish we could illustrate this for a podcast listeners. We can't, we can't really do that. But they're sitting at, uh, think of uh, three, what do they call, you know, four by eight tables you have at these churches mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the fellowship hall. Think of those three tables set up in a kind of a, a U shape. Yeah. And the inside of the U shape is where the servants come to put food in the table. So on the outside of the tables, they're reclining. So right off the bat, actually, this is really good. Let's get rid of Da Vinci's Last Supper painting. Yes, correct. Because that's one straight table. Of course, it fits better in a painting that way. Yeah, yeah. So like wipe that from your men in black, that thing where you could erase your memory. That's not what the Last Supper and these sort of dinners look like. That's right. Put two tables, one on the left, one on the right, going Mm -hmm. vertically there. The reclining now. And by the way, and Jesus is not sitting in the middle. So most likely he's on the right-hand side of the table in the middle of that table. So if he has mm. three or four people there, he's in the middle of that. And the person to his left and the person to his right are the people in the, in the seats of honor. They're also laying on their left side and they use their right hand to dip in to the bowl. And of course they're using bread as their fork or as their mm-hmm. spoon and they dip it in the bowl. So he goes on and says, well, one of you will betray me. And they're like, well, who's it going to be? It's not I. And then he says in Matthew 26, 23, it's one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me. Well, that limits it now mm-hmm. to the people sitting next to him or near him within one or two seats of him because mm-hmm. they're all mm-hmm. sharing the same bowl. The people on the other table are sharing the same bowl. People on the other table are sharing the same bowl. And of course, they say, Judas then replies, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answers, and this will be my translation, you said it or you said it yourself. Mm. So yeah, it is you. The translations are difficult. Like it's surely not I, or like it could be a question or it could be, a st- it's, it's not me. And Jesus answers, yes, it is. Mm. And then John 13 picks up and says, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter, now reclining on his bosom, we discussed, I think, with the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in the Gospel of Luke. 
That means he's sitting to Jesus' right-hand side. So when he leans back on his left arm and leans backwards, he's at the right hand of Jesus. He's leaning into Jesus' chest. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us, who is it of whom he is speaking? And he leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, this is the one of whom I shall dip the morsel and, and give it to him. And when he had dipped the morsel, he took it out and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan entered into him. And therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Hmm. Now, no one of those who were reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing that because Judas had the money box that he was saying to him, hey, buy things we need for the feast or else then he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went on immediately, and it was night. Now, there's a number of things that are really significant here. won't get into the details too much about this, but we're going to talk on our next episode that you and I do, Vinny, on the Gospel of Luke, about Luke's version of the, of the Last Supper, Luke chapter 22. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll look at that story there. And what we'll notice note is that after Jesus gives the Last Supper, the very next thing that happens is there's an argument as to which one of them is the greatest. Now, well, it can't be certain that that argument as to which one was the greatest actually happened at the Last Supper or that, or that Luke just put it in this particular order to make a point. But if it were at the Last Supper, it would be intriguing because Peter is not sitting at the seat of honor. Mm. And we don't know why. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's up on the other side of the table. Now, on the other side of the table means he could be like fourth in honor. But nonetheless, he, he motions to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which the debate is whether this is Lazarus or whether that's John, John the mm-hmm. Apostle or whatever it might be. I tend to favor John the Apostle, but I, I'm not certain that we are, are conclusive on this. Richard Balcom doesn't agree with that. And I, I kind of default to Richard Balcom on all things uh, Richard Balcom has any word to have to say on because he's such a great scholar. So the other thing, of course, is that Mark's gospel then adds in Mark 14, verse 21, the son of man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It would have been good for that man uh, if he had not been born. I think it's significant that Judas is there the entire time, at least for this part of the meal, that Jesus is giving him uh, the honored morsel of bread to the, to the guest of honor. He's bestowing friendship and a token of friendship, even while Judas takes it as an act of betrayal. And remember, later on that night, Judas is going to come with some soldiers and he's going to call him friend. Jesus is going to say friend while Judas is betraying him. So at this point is when we get the idea of the formal idea of communion now, and this thing that has the, the, the followers of Jesus and the followers of the followers of Jesus are now supposed to start doing. Yes. So Jesus is taking a Passover meal as we began discussing the Seder and, and Passover. Mm-hmm. He's taking a Jewish Passover meal and he's interpreting it in light of himself as the fulfillment of this meal and then instituting communion saying, okay, the bread that you're eating actually is, is me. Mm-hmm. Now, the Passover bread reminded them of the unleavened bread that they were to eat at the Passover in case they had to get up and leave in haste. Mm. Now, I've actually seen churches that would take communion by taking unleavened bread. Mm. Well, because that's what bread that Jesus used at the Last Supper. And my response to that is Jesus is the bread and Jesus has risen. So we don't eat unleavened bread at communion. We eat risen bread at communion. Okay. okay. So the, the reason why he ate unleavened bread was because he hadn't risen yet. And he's taking a Jewish Passover meal and saying, hey, this is fulfilled in me. But now we absolutely must take leavened bread. Mm -hmm. I say must, but obviously, you know, that's fine. We should take leavened bread. Mm -hmm. And by the way, and it should be King's Hawaiian bread. 
Because if you're going to have communion, it's got to taste good. I mean, right? Th- those little wafers that come in prepackaged things for communion. It just gives you bad breath and a gross taste afterwards. And it sticks in your teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it has all the earmarks of marketing, mm-hmm. of consumerism. Hey, buy this prepackaged bread. It's like, no, go to the store and buy a loaf of bread. I loved it when the deacons would prepare communion at my church for us and get it, and get it ready. And they'd have the bread all all cut up and uh, or you don't cut bread but they cut it anyways that's okay mm-hmm. one won't tell anybody but they'd have a loaf of bread in the middle so when i was talking about the the words of institution uh, on the night he was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it i could i could take that loaf and mm-hmm. break it mm-hmm. right there in front of them and say yeah this is my body broken for you i love the symbolism of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i actually okay. remember I, the first church i ever attended who did that uh, we met at sunday night and so someone from the congregation would go get bread and it was always like warm French bread. Oh, nice. And so it was, it was, there was even just something where you're trying to communicate this meal that you're going to have. And you could even smell the bread in the room and you would go up and you would just peel a piece off. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, that, you know, th- there was something, the tangibility of it was just different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Luke's gospel then has, as I mentioned, Jesus speaking on servant leadership. And we're going to skip that also. Of course, in Luke's gospel, this happens next, but we're going to discuss that on our, on our next Luke podcast. So if we continue then, we have John 13, now 31 uh, through 35, where Jesus gives this new commandment and hence the name Maundy Thursday. So if you, do you want to read that, Vinny? John 13, verses 31 through 35. Sure. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Yeah, and I think that statement, we shouldn't just gloss over that so quickly. Of course, this is where the name Monday Thursday comes from. That's a new commandment. And it's not new in the sense that they didn't have this before. Because this uh, is just, this is Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is new in its force. And mm-hmm. it's new in the sense of your love for one another is a sacrificial love for the sake of the other. It's new mm-hmm. in its intensity and, and its kind. Remember, of course, as we discussed so much now on the, on the podcast, that it's new in the sense of it's laying down your life for the other, regardless of where they are in the social uh, status and social hierarchy within that culture there. Of course, Paul's going to pick up on this in the book of Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. Um, this is the essence, of course, of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So I don't think we can gloss over the significance of this too quickly here. I think we need to resonate with that a little bit. So at this point in time, let's finish up maybe this first episode. We're going to make this part one and part two by noting that they're singing a hymn, uh, the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 115 to 118. They're called Hallel, which means, of course, hallelujah or praise Mm -hmm. be to the Lord. And they begin to head to the garden. And of course, the garden should immediately cause you to think, Genesis, Mm -hmm. the garden. Of course, the garden has great significance. So let's pick it up there on on our next episode. We'll finish up Thursday night. And what happens, of course, at the garden on Thursday night, and then take us into the events on Friday and the the cross on our next episode. Awesome. So check the show notes, lots of information in this one. And I hope this episode and next episode will really just help prepare you as we uh, head into Passion Week. See you guys soon.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.